Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. New episodes release monthly. Welcome to another episode of Embracing Autism IRL. Today I have with me Kelly Coleman. Kelly is a feature film development executive turned author and advocate for parent caregivers and individuals with disabilities. Her writing and advocacy draw upon over a decade of experience accessing supports necessary for children with disabilities to succeed including her own. Her book, Everything No One Tells You About Parenting a Disabled Child, Your Guide to the Essential Systems, Services, and Supports, is available for pre-order at all book places and will be released on March 12, 2024. She currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband, two boys, and her son's trusty service dog. Hey, how you doing, Kelly? I'm great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm sure it was friends who sent me your podcast, and it's nice that I feel like in a creepy way, I'm already friends with you guys because <laughs> I all the time. So hopefully th- that's not creepy. I have to ask you really quickly, what kind of service dog do you have? So the kind that she is, is a golden lab, Aww. and we got her through an organization called Canine Companions. And I could, I could talk service dogs all day, every day, um, but it has definitely been a really cool journey for us because yes, she is trained in tasks to mitigate a disability because that is what service dogs do. But there's been just so many ancillary benefits and socialization and comfort and just so many things in addition to the tasks that I feel like it's just been a learning journey for all of us. <laughs> We've been considering one too, but uh, our kid is actually afraid of dogs. So we're like, maybe that wouldn't work. <laughs> I heard that from a number of friends. Yeah. So I just want to go ahead and start this off by getting to know you a little bit better. Could you let me and my audience know a little bit more about your work in disability rights and what inspired you to write your book? Yes, thank you. So I am coming to the world of disability and disability rights as a parent caregiver, not as a disabled individual. And I like to start with that caveat because if you as a neurodivergent person or just another person in the world hear me say something wrong, I invite the feedback and the hey, don't say that because that's how we're all going to learn all of this. I feel like I am on a journey of my own education that will take forever that really started in the disability world. I have two amazing sons. One is 12, one is 10, and they are vibrant and hilarious and wonderfully weird and all the great things that they are. Our younger son, in addition, has multiple disabilities, including autism, also a yet undiagnosed genetic syndrome, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, cortical vision impairment, feeding tube, sensory stuff, gross motor, fine motor, processing of all the things. He's an overachiever. He's like, I'm just going to check all those boxes. And I am coming to this starting from a place a decade ago-ish when he was born of 
pretty much total ignorance. I would have said, oh, I'm not ableist. I love disabled people. And like realizing over the years just how much I didn't know all this rotten messaging that too many of us grow up with and having to unlearn a lot as well as having to learn, as I'm sure you know, all of these complicated systems of social services and insurance and future care plans and IEPs and like all of this stuff where I feel like is a full-time job in addition to parenting, in addition to other work. So much of my advocacy really comes back to what is all of this boring stuff that we all have to figure out yesterday that no one knows how to do and that is often really hard and confusing and all the things? And how do you actually make all of that understandable and doable so that our kids can succeed and so that parent caregivers can succeed not only in supporting their children, but also as humans who need to protect their own mental health and just being a person. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of parents struggle with that initial challenge with trying to figure out, you know, how to get started, where to go, what are the things I need to know. But all the things that are challenging tend to educate us slowly over time. And we end up being like really good at this at the end. I think that's how you ended up going from like basically not knowing what you were doing to like, hey, I've got a book now. And I think that's basically the same journey we took with our podcast where we started like, I don't know anything. And now we're like, hey, here's a how-to podcast. Yes. Yes, and how empowering it is to say, I'm going to take this journey that I've been on, this bottomless pit that I felt like I started out in, and say, like, I'm going to keep people out of that pit if I possibly can. And it's so rewarding to be able to give actual resources that people can use, even if it is, I say only, but this is it could be everything. The community and the you're not alone in all of this is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we like to do is because parents are so aware of the challenges is we like to bring up some of those benefits. So from your experience, what would you say is one of the benefits of having disabled children or having learned about disability throughout this process? There have been all the things in our disability journey. There are things I would take away. I would take away epilepsy. Seizures are real hard. And the medical stuff can be challenging. I think we're not talking about the full range of experience if we pretend that doesn't exist. But we're also not talking about the full range of experience if we don't address exactly what you just said and the benefits. In thinking about this question, especially coming from you and this community in particular, I think about how you guys often bring up individualizing everything and the need for that in conversations and IEPs, like in all of the things. And I think we have been taught and reminded every single day to view our children not as little versions of us, not as identical to one another or to anyone else. And because our son's disabilities are so apparent, whether it's by looking at him or communicating with him or seeing him from a distance out in the world, there is no masking to be had. And fortunately, he does not exhibit masking as part of his uh, personality. He is loud and proud. And how can we as parents and how can I, as his mom, really support and love him as a total unique and complete individual who does not need fixing, who does not need me to 
tell him who he is, but for me to look at him and say, I like who you are. You're pretty great because he is. And yes, there are things that are hard. There are things that are hard about everything, but I love the gift of we so fully see him as an individual. And I think it has really guided me towards seeing everyone so much as an individual, especially people outside of my own demographic in whichever demographic box it checks to really approach from a place of wanting to understand and wanting to be curious and wanting to get to know who you are and putting my own filter and things to the side as much as I can, because I genuinely do want to fully know who people are. It's way more interesting if I could put my filter aside as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we learned because we have two autistic kids and they're the polar opposite. Like they need very similar accommodations, but literally for opposite reasons. Yes. So we thought when we had the first that we had it all figured out. When we had the second, we're like, oh, we got this. And then we're like, oh, wait, we don't because she's totally different. (laughs) So I totally get that. Oh, absolutely. When our first son, who does not have any disabilities, when he was born, we were like, you know what? We got this. Like, we are such great parents. Clearly, all of his quote unquote easy babiness is because of our awesome parenting. When our next child came along, we're like, oh, that's because that's who he is. And all of the challenges and the things and the medical stuff is actually not because our parenting isn't awesome. It's because this is very different. Hopefully our parents are not terrible. We'll see. <laughs> we'll find out like what, 18 years from now from me. <laughs> so when he's in therapy and calls us. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and talk about paperwork because I know that that's one of the things that you kind of dig deep into. The listeners of this podcast are primarily women between like 35, 45 who are really at the beginning part or more towards the elementary, lower high school age. A lot of what they're going through is paperwork, whether that's medical paperwork, whether that's, you know, IEPs or whatever it may be. So just kind of broadly speaking, what advice can you offer to parents who are struggling to figure out all the paperwork that is involved with an autism diagnosis? An autism diagnosis, as well as all of the pre-diagnosis, as you know, diagnosis might come very early. It might come well into adulthood and everything in between. The first step of paperwork advice is it stinks, doesn't it? And it's not just you. And if you feel like you are drowning in mountains of paperwork, yes, that is true. And you are not alone in that. It's going to have to be done whether you like it or not. It's going to stink. You're going to have to do it. So as best as you can, create systems, whether that is carving out the time and saying, I'm going to turn off my internet. I'm not going to look at cat videos. And I am going to like answer the questions for the evaluation for the IEP, or I'm going to call my social service agency or sit on hold for my insurance company. Carve out the time. Is it ever going to be fun? No, not going to be fun. But the reward in it is when you are seeing the benefit to your child and that will come. I wish someone had told me that. You will actually see the benefit of this, whether it is the insurance reimbursement, whether it is that magical service that pairs with my child at school that allows him to suddenly communicate. You'll get there. You will get better at this. Won't be fun. If it is fun, call me. Let me know how you made that happen. (laughs) I would love to know. But schedule the time, make it happen, and you will see the rewards. 
Yeah, I definitely have had our lion's share of paperwork. And one of the things that I learned through that process is I know not everyone can do this, but for those who are in a position that they can hire an advocate, they can help reduce that paperwork load. But again, I know not everyone can do that, but we were blessed enough that we were able to do that. And that helped a lot. (laughs) Absolutely. And also, if you are in the position to hire an advocate, when you are talking to people, Don't be shy about saying, I need someone who can give me back my time. How can you give me back my time? Can you do this paperwork? Can you make this easier? And if the person's like, oh, no, 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 and that's what you're looking for, there's your answer. So let's say they get all this paperwork straightened out. Now they're approved and they've got the financial resources to go and get those therapies. Now they got to figure out therapies. So how would you recommend parents navigate therapies and finding the right therapist for their child? I love so much that you're asking about the right therapies and the right therapist for your child. It is so incredibly individualized. My son has a feeding tube, but there's nothing physically preventing him from eating. Therefore, feeding therapy is appropriate for him. Feeding therapy might not be appropriate for your child for a million different reasons. So first of all, Think about what is appropriate for your child just because it exists doesn't mean you should be chasing it. You also need to know, which again, I know you've talked about on your podcast and I so appreciate the reality that where you live will inform what services are available locally. Is there anything you can access via Zoom? Are there classes you can take if things are not available in your area? Also taking into account what will your insurance plan or your local social service agency cover. It's very different within each plan. It's very different within each state, county, city, area when it comes to state social services. Find out what can be covered. It is very easy to pour thousands of dollars into therapies that aren't covered. And as you are thinking about what is your family's budget that works and is successful and sustainable, remember to think about your child. And this is still a child. It is very easy. And I know we've had this conversation in my family many times and often of these are the therapies that are available. This is how packed we can make his schedule. And what does that do to his childhood? He doesn't play like typical kids play. He doesn't communicate, seek out toys as others his age would, but he still has the right to a childhood and to fun and to play and to being a member of the family. And what does that look like within your family? For some kids, therapy can, and especially in early years, early intervention, and as they get older, therapy should have pleasure and fun and be play-based and not play according to my play, but according to my child's play. Things, especially in the world of neurodivergence, are importantly debated on high and articulate levels when it comes to the amounts and the types of therapy especially when you are looking at behavior therapies, especially when you are looking at ABA. If families are starting off on this journey, if that is what is being suggested, if that is what is being talked about with any therapy, always take the opportunity to listen to individuals who can communicate their experience. 
autistic individuals if your child has autism, other neurodivergent individuals if those are the boxes that your child checks, and get a full picture of what something would look like when it works so that if you are trying it, you will also get a picture of what it looks like when it does not work. If someone comes to you, whether it's physical therapy, a behavior therapy, feeding therapy, whatever it is, and rolls up their sleeves and says, I'm here to fix your kid. Run, run, run away. Does your kid need to be fixed or does he need the motor skills to walk? Two different conversations. Does your kid like to squeal and flap and lick the record player like mine does? And it's hilarious and wonderful. And does the therapist say, oh, we got to fix that? Or does your therapist say, what a great outlet? And he tells you which record he wants. Okay, we're going to stop licking it because that's dangerous. And we've had paper cuts on our tongue and that's no good. But this is great. He's dancing. How can we dance more? Again, ABA, I am not advocating for or against. What I'm advocating for is listening to autistic individuals always because why not? There is a great video online made by this wonderful autistic creator online is Nye Functioning Autism. There's a video she has saying, watch this video before you start ABA. And it is by a very articulate and well-thought-out autistic creator who is a parent and very well-thought-out. Resources like that, any autistic individuals Get a full sense of what something looks like when it works, what doesn't, so that you can make the best decisions for your child. And to the extent your child is able to communicate, follow their lead. When our son was vomiting and crying and freaking out every time we took him to feeding therapy, we stopped feeding therapy. And we're like, feeding tube it is, great. Because he did not have the words to tell us, but boy, he was telling us. I have a child whose communication is very much emerging and will continue to emerge, and it does not happen with spoken words, but I can follow his lead. I can give him the comfort and security, especially when it comes to therapies, because that is new people coming into his circle. I can give him the opportunity to trust me and to trust that I will listen to him. And even if I've been told this therapy is the thing and this is the best therapist in the world, if this is aversive or traumatic or just too much for my kid, I need to listen to him. Yeah. Something that we experienced early on was when we were bringing our youngest to occupational therapy. I think she was probably only like two at that point. And there was just no chemistry with her and the therapist. And she would come home crying and upset. And there was nothing she was doing wrong. Like she wasn't really like doing anything wrong with our child or anything, but they were just, you could tell the chemistry wasn't there. As soon as we switched her, like same therapy, same occupational therapy, but we switched her with another therapist, it was like night and day. It's like they had chemistry and she felt comfortable and safe with that person. So sometimes it's even something as little as like just switching the literal therapist who is performing the therapy. So yeah, I definitely have learned, I would say kind of the hard way that listening and really keeping that tuned of what your kid is experiencing is the best way, which is hard to do if your kid's nonverbal. It can be hard to do. And I just want to highlight something you said within there that it's like your mom intuition, your gut, whatever told you this was the right thing. And the therapist, I'm sure, was very capable and a lovely human. But trusting your mom gut, your dad gut, your parent of whatever sort gut 
when you feel it, even if you're like, man, I want to have brunch with this therapist. They're awesome. I love that you brought that up because you trusted your gut and it was the right thing for your child. Yeah. And and she absolutely thrived once we got the other therapist. I want to touch on something that you mentioned a little earlier in your response. You mentioned about the challenges like with government benefits a little bit. So I wanted to dive in a little bit and see just from your perspective, what do you think are the most important things that parents should know about insurance and government benefits? If there was just like one or two things that they should know, what would those be? Insurance and government benefits. Boy, what a mess that is. It was the chapter that I was most dreading writing because it is so messy. The biggest thing to know is that, yes, it is different state by state and even county by county, sometimes within the counties. So start off by being certain that you are getting local information. My best friend in Texas has a different journey than I have in California because even under the same federal guidelines, states conduct and fund and determine programs very differently. In every state is a parent training and information center. And if you Google Indiana Parent Training and Information Center, you will find yours. There will be people there. If you are not started on this journey, if you are not connected with the resources yet, start there. They're often run by other parents who have been there so they can speak conversation language, not weird HR language that no one understands. And they're humans who are there to help you. And you will need to understand how your state defines disability. And that is important because that will determine if your child is eligible for services. Yes, you will need evaluations. You will need to make certain that within their guidelines, your child qualifies. But there are resources to help you. And again, with all this, if you are feeling out to sea and confused and overwhelmed, yep, you're right on track. And you know technically something I would also consider a government technically resource is also through the education system. I know it's technically a public, but you know, it all ties in together. What do you think parents can do to ensure that their child will also be appropriately supported in the school system itself? Yes, the school system is such a huge part of any child's upbringing, even for the homeschooled children. This is a major thing. And Every teacher I have talked to about this has said the exact same thing, which is communicate with the teacher. And then I talk to the parents who are having a good school experience, and they say the same thing. Even if you have a challenged relationship with a teacher, you are going to need information about what is going on during the school day. You need those rock-solid IEP goals. You need the services and supports that will allow your child to access the education, and that all needs to be in writing in the IEP. But to know if the IEP is being implemented, you need to have regular communication with the teacher. Ask the teacher if they prefer in-person emails, texts, phone calls. Find out their preferred method. And If there is a language barrier, I live in a city, my son attends a school where there are many language barriers. If English is not your first language, and that is the language primarily spoken at school, not only is there no shame in that, but we have especially technology and resources to facilitate communication. Our son's teachers are often dealing with English, Spanish, Armenian, other languages in the classroom. 
when the parents are not English speakers, are not complete or emerging English speakers on their own journey, they will bring their Translate app. They want you there. Your te- the teachers want you to communicate and they respect you as the parent, as an involved, intelligent human. And please do not let language barriers deter you from creating that bridge of communication with your teachers. Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned there that kind of piqued my interest was the homeschool students. How does that process differ for them? Homeschool, again, is wildly different with each state, district, and family and individual. And really talking to those parent training and information centers talking to other local parents, looking at groups online. If you are doing homeschool, if you are thinking about homeschool, we have not homeschooled. We have considered it and have not chosen to do that. But there are many groups and resources. And I hear consistently, if you are homeschooling, you will be most successful if you are not an island doing this all yourself. Even if it is connecting with resources and groups online, Finding that community for yourself and for your child, even if it's over Zoom, your child might find connection and familiarity with other learners like them. All of us, disabled or not, can use that validation that someone else is experiencing and learning and thinking as I am, and that can be a great springboard for falling in love with learning. That is so true. I think that there's some unique challenges to the homeschool path. But I know that there are things that parents can do that sometimes they're not aware of, like in our local school system. I learned that, like, for instance, even if you're homeschool, your child still has the right to actively participate in like after school activities, clubs, things like that. That's something that parents often are not told or aren't informed about. And again, I'm sure that differs county by county, state by state, but definitely something to consider because I know there's probably some homeschool parent listeners out there. Yes. And also talk to your local school district's office of special education if you're on the special education track or talk to your local school administration and say, hey, I'm a homeschool parent. I want to talk about what's available. And this is good advice even beyond school. Don't be afraid to say to people, do you have this information? And if not, that's cool. Who can you steer me towards who does? And oftentimes you won't be talking to the right person, but they will know who the right person is and you need to ask. That's so true. I feel like a lot of times we don't ask (laughs) and that's where we get stuck and hit that wall. But yeah, if you keep doing the work to dig, eventually you'll get there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And how can you not leave a conversation, whether that's with a medical specialist, whether that's with your child's homeschool or IEP or your insurance phone call? Always leave with a path forward. If this has not been resolved, whether it is an IP question, insurance, whatever, if this has not been resolved, ask the person, what are my next steps? And do not exit that conversation or interaction without next steps. And if they say, oh, I'm going to talk to Sally, thank you so much. When can I follow up with you? about your conversation with Sally. You need to hold people accountable. It is so much extra work for us. We do so much stuff, but that one phone call to ask about the conversation with Sally might be the thing that gets your child to that service or support that they very much need to thrive. 
that's how you make things actionable. So you always make sure you have a, some sort of thing to work off of if you always make sure those conversations result with something actionable. <laughs> yes, exactly. You talk a little bit about looking into a financial planner. Why do you think that parents should meet with a financial planner and what exactly do they do? The biggest takeaway from any conversation about finances is to know exactly where you are even before you start your journey of determining that, to fully know and understand there is no shame in where you are. Whether you're just like throwing around money, like great, good for you. Give me your number. I want to hear all about it. Or if you are in debt, if you are having trouble putting food on the table, there is no shame in knowing where you are, knowing where you want or need to be, talking to a professional and saying, this is where I am, and crying or saying you're scared, that is all fair game, or just saying, I don't know how to do this. A general financial planner and how much people charge will vary greatly depending on your resources, what you're looking to do, like all the things. Local libraries sometimes even offer financial planning assistance. So I love library. Like, go ask your library. Ask your parent training and information center. There are low and no cost options often. There are financial planners who help put all the things in place, whether it's your will, trust, all the things. There are also special needs financial planners sometimes and increasingly known as disability financial planners. If you have a child with a disability, if this is a lifelong disability, especially one that will require or may require lifelong support of any sort, especially government assistance, you must talk specifically to a special needs financial planner because the way finances are set up for your child, once they hit adulthood especially, can and will impact their government benefits. If your child has a certain amount of money in the bank, and this can vary, but it's around $2,000, which is not a lot of money, especially if you're trying to pay rent and groceries and, God forbid, go to a movie sometime. If your child has more than that amount in their name in any account, they will lose government benefits. That can include housing, that can include job training and support, that can include programs, that can include respite, nursing, medical care, like there is so much tied into that. You need a planner who knows how to take that into account and how to set up your future financial plans and goals and structures so that your child will not lose government benefits because that literally can happen the day they turn 18. And that's really scary. And there are things that can be done but talk to a person. What do you think would be the best piece of advice to give to parents? What is it that you kind of wish you would have been told or what is something that you think other parents should be told? At the beginning of our journey, we knew something was going on. We knew pretty much nothing about disability. I was such a mess for such a long time because of ignorance and all the things. I thought disability was the worst thing that could happen to my child, to our family, to me, to our future. Like, this was the worst. And I was a mess. 
I thought that because I had no real information. And I thought this feeling of total inadequacy was forever. And that feeling is horrible. The thing that I wish someone had told me from the beginning is quite simply, you will feel better. When parents start on this journey, they are often starting from the same place I started from, and you do feel inadequate, and it feels all-consuming, and you haven't yet learned many things, but you haven't really gotten to know your child at the beginning, or maybe you've only just started to get to know your child, the gap between, I am so inadequate, and I don't know how I'm going to do this, and like, I got this, we're good, let's go have a sandwich. The thing that connects those two is just how much you love your kid. And you will feel better because you will love this kid so much. It will be hard. It will be different. It will be wonderful. It will be all the things. But you are not inadequate for your child. And you will figure it out because you love this kid. And you will feel better. I think that that really ties in nicely into why we do what we do with the Embracing Autism podcast, why we call it Embracing Autism, because that's exactly right. It's like a part of the process to get to the point where you're not just accepting autism. You're like fully embracing it. You're fully embracing disability within your child. What does the phrase then Embracing Autism mean to you? Embracing Autism, it's such a great name. Because I think it speaks to so much that is universal and big picture beyond autism, beyond disability, beyond neurodivergence. Am I accepting the fullness of humans and what exists and all the different neurotypes and all of the different things? And whatever my kid is and does and becomes for Either one of my kids, one's autistic and has a lot of other disabilities, one is not and does not. Not only am I embracing the autism, am I embracing all of the things that they are and all of the things that I am? I'm not autistic, but what can I learn from those who are? And it becomes exciting to just declare, I'm going to embrace this because then I can figure out what this is within the bigger picture of the world and our family and of my child without trying to change or fix anyone. Well said. So I'm going to wrap up here, but I want to give you an opportunity to share any resources that you have with my audience. So everything no one tells you about parenting a disabled child, your guide to the essential system service and services and supports It has the personal stories and letters from fellow parents. It is intentionally diverse and disability positive with many disabled experts. There are over 40 experts interviewed. There are the templates and the worksheets and the lists and checklists that I have had sitting on my computer for the last decade. I'm proud of this because it is the resource I wish I had had. It is not a, here's what I did, so you have to do this. It is Here is a foundation so that you can build your journey. And it comes back to your message of individualizing. How can you individualize your journey that works for your child, your family, for you that is sustainable? And this book is really that groundwork and that foundation 
And I say it's the alternative to go home, Google and cry, which is often <laughs> basically what we're told when we get a diagnosis and we're like, oh, I just Googled and this is bad. Um, first, get some foundational knowledge. And then when you Google, you can separate the good from the bad and the real from the freaky headline grabs. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And on that point, where can people find this and where can people find you on social media? Yes, thank you. My book is available to be ordered at all the book places, Amazon and other. My website has all my social media and info. It's www.kellycoleman.com, as it says on screen. And that's K-E-L-L-E-Y Coleman.com. And lots of great stuff and pictures of me with the computer underwater and lots of fun things. And I think you said you have Instagram too, right? Yes. And Instagram, which is also listed on the website, it's at Hello Kelly Coleman. And would love for people to come check out the book. Let me know what you think. Hopefully, this will be updated many times over with all of your brilliant suggestions. So, you guys heard that. Check out her website. Give her a follow on Instagram. Kelly, thank you so much for being a part of the show. We really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully, you enjoyed it too. <laughs> yes, thank you. I love being a part of your community. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.